From Foundation Capital, this is B2B a CEO, a podcast about the startup journey, about going from idea to IPO, and growing from a founder into a CEO. On each episode, I speak with notable CEOs and founders and get their stories about what it took to build a company of scale and become a leader in the enterprise. I'm Ashu Garg, a general partner at Foundation Capital. On this episode, I'm featuring one of my CEO interviews from FC Build 2021, Foundation Capital's recent enterprise conference. This conversation was recorded with a live audience, so it's a little more raw than our usual episodes. But I thought you might get a kick out of listening to me do one of these without a net. And if you have any feedback for me, suggestions for future guests, or if you're thinking about starting a company, shoot me a note at agard at foundationcapital.com. I'm really excited to welcome Ali, who is the co-founder and CEO of Databricks, where I'm a seed investor. Uh, Ali co-founded Databricks along with Jan Stoika and Matej Zaharia coming out of the AMP Lab in Berkeley in 2013. He initially led, led product and engineering and became the CEO in 2016. Databricks was recently reported to have led a round at 38 billion. And so from a seed project in 2013 to 38 billion is, is quite an achievement. Uh, Ali was also our uh, speaker at the last FC bill last year, and he's back by popular demand. Ali, welcome to Foundation Capital's FC Build 2021 edition. Thank you so much, Asher. Super excited to be here. Uh, well, thank you for joining us. Can you start perhaps, and this is a little bit of repeat from last year, share the founding story of Spark and Databricks? Yeah, look, it's uh, um, it, it's kind of this, the journey we've been on is kind of the same uh, all along. Like Nothing has really changed for the last you know, 10, 11, or 12 years. It kind of all started around 2008, 2009. Um, um, now, you know, Turing Award winner, Dave Patterson, was one of the big professors uh, in the lab. And he said, look, uh, computers are not getting any faster. And um, we've hit this Moore's wall. And from now on, uh, from now on, we'll have to kind of uh, figure out the new computer. And the new computer is the data center. And... Uh, so that kind of started, initiated a bunch of research at UC Berkeley among us uh, that we have this new computer, the data center, the yep. data center or the cloud, and we have to build all this software again from scratch for this new computer. And we got to see kind of what the what the Silicon Valley tech companies at the time were doing. Uh, Facebook, Google, you know, um, Uber was starting at the time. Twitter was sort of in the early days. And actually, you could see it. So Twitter had this one giant computer. Uh, that had massive amounts of RAM, a little bit less than a terabyte. And that one giant computer would process all the tweets in the world. So it was just one computer for all the tweet processing, right? Unheard of. Uh, but it was around that cusp that they were saying, we can't do this anymore. We pretty much have to go distributed and start using clusters, the cloud, and so on. Uh, so we were sort of just seeing what these four tech companies were doing. And we wanted to democratize that. We were big fans of open source. So we said, what if we open source some technology that can help you do big data processing, uh, you know, distributed in these new yeah. data centers? And that was sort of the beginning of it. And uh, the first project we did was uh, actually called Mesos, which then was used by Twitter for all of their sort of processing of tweets. I think they still mm -hmm. use it today. 
Uh, second project that came out of it was Spark, which then was the foundation of kind of Databricks. So it really was, you know, how do we democratize data, analytics, machine learning to all these enterprises? How do we give the, you know, uh, classic large enterprises that have been around 50 years the same software stack as a Facebook or a Twitter? That was our initial take. And we were naive at the time. We thought this open source software, people will download it and it will take over the world. But that didn't quite happen. So what did happen? Well, uh, you know, um, we were going around uh, and talking to this company saying, look, please adopt our technology. At the time, Hadoop was all the rage. Yep. Uh, you know, it's almost, you know, completely forgotten now. But I think 2012 was the largest investment, second largest investment ever was in, I think, Cloudera. Uh, number one largest investment was in Uber. You know, 700 million or so had been invested in this uh, Hadoop company. And people didn't want to hear it. They didn't want to hear about Spark. They didn't want to hear about machine learning. Machine learning was niche. It wasn't a big thing. Believe it or not, yep. I think it's hard to believe now. AI was a robotics term. So it was like robots. Yep. And machine learning was not synonymous with that. Machine learning was something maybe, you know, Google or Facebook was, were doing. Uh, so we had a hard time. So 2000. Uh, 13, when you did that seed investment, uh, it was kind of a little bit frustration on our part too, that if we want this technology to take off, we probably have to start a company because these other enterprises are not picking it up. They won't have it. Uh, so it was slightly out of frustration and slightly out of spite of let's show them that this open source software can work. And that's all we wanted to do. We had no business aspirations, to be honest. I mean, it was sort of, let's just, let's just get this software adopted. Yeah, and it, you know, it, 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 it was a remarkable start, as you said. It was, it was about demonstrating that it would work and it would work at scale. And now over time, you know, while you started off with Spark, Databricks has become so much more and it's become a much broader platform for data scientists, machine learning engineers, and even, you know, business analysts at this point. Uh, can you talk a little bit more about that journey and your vision for the future? Yeah, I mean, when we started, as I said, it was, let's just make this Spark be adopted and let's yep. make people understand what it is. And first two, three, two, three years, the only focus was how do we get more downloads? How do we get more people to adopt the software? Uh, and we would have these conferences called Spark Summit and we would try to get as much people in the open source community to adopt it. Um, 2015, so this is six years into the project's lifetime, something kind of amazing happened and then something not so great happened. The great thing that happened is almost overnight, this Spark open source project became a kind of a worldwide phenomenon. Uh, it was sort of the business press, all these enterprises that had rejected it suddenly that year started talking about that they love it. It's amazing. It's great. It's fantastic. IBM launched something called Spark Technology Center. They said they're going to train a million data scientists on Spark. You know, courses were launched. So we kind of made it. We were done. Uh, the bad news was we only had about $1 million revenue that year for the company. Uh, and I remember a kind of famous quote in a board meeting, which is, you have less revenue than the local restaurant. Uh, you know, so, uh, so that was a kind of good year and a critical and a difficult year for us at the same time. And that's when we started focusing on, look, how do we actually make the business uh, start growing much more? And we started turning our attention to enterprises. And it turned out that the open source technology itself wasn't enough that what we had built wasn't enough to make these enterprises successful. The enterprises were not as sophisticated as the forward tech companies that we had given the technology to. 
you know, it turns out the Ubers, the Twitters, the Facebooks of the world, they have a different level of sophistication. Yep. And, um, so that's when the journey started on how do we really democratize it for enterprise? How do we simplify this? How do we make it even easier? Uh, and that led to several new open source projects that we developed over the years. Uh, you know, we started focusing on how do we actually make the data processing more reliable? Because, you know, in enterprises, a lot of them are shooting themselves in the foot with data. So Delta came out of that. Uh, and then we started looking at how do we actually help enable machine learning? There was this proliferation of machine learning frameworks, TensorFlow, PyTorch. And every week there would be a new one. The large enterprises couldn't adopt them because, you know, they need a certain level of security and reliability and sort of comfort. And so we developed MLflow, which was how do we help them uh, sort of orchestrate and operationalize all this open, open source machine learning tech that's out there. Um, so now we have sort of a more complete stack that could cover everything from just pure big data processing with Spark to Delta that enabled you get more reliability and quality with your data to machine learning operationalization. And then enterprises, you know, had more and more also become interested in, can we just do basic analytics with you? Just basic analytics. We just want to use Tableau. Uh, can we use that? Uh, so that led to the Redash acquisition, which is an open source project for more BI. Um, so then, you know, the platform sort of expanded over time. So now it's a multi-persona platform uh, that sort of the idea is to democratize data analytics and AI for every sort of data uh, person in an organization, ranging from data scientists to data engineers to business analysts. Uh, and administrators that like operate this stuff for big enterprises. So it's much bigger, broader platform. So that's kind of how the product has evolved, evolved over time on the engineering side. And what, how has that translated into the evolution of your business and the business model? Yeah. So when we started in 2015, 16, when the revenue sort of focused on growing the business side, we were a bottoms up sales motion. Uh, we had a lot of people that had inbound interest in Apache Spark. Uh, they maybe downloaded it somewhere. We would reach out to them. And these are these are sort of the kids with free t-shirts, jeans, and sneakers, and you know, laptops with lots of stickers on. And they loved it. They want to have a selfie. You know, you guys created this technology, it's awesome. And we would make them pretty successful in these organizations. But then when we got to the hey, so can you pay for this? they would say sort of, hey, uh, you know, I don't really have any budget here. Uh, <laughs> uh, there was actually an interesting moment. We were at Jawbone, if you remember that company. Uh, yep. We had engaged for them over six months or a year almost. And then we got to the moment where we said, hey, can you pay for this? And I said, not really. And, uh, and so at the end of it, we said, well, why don't you just keep the software for free? And we'll just keep it running. And then maybe eventually you want to pay for it. And they said, no, please just shut it down. I said, why? I mean, we're giving it to you for free. He said, well, we're getting an AWS bill of $20 every month. And we kind of can't afford that. So, uh, <laughs> you know, so we had to sort of. Uh, so the lesson was bottom up is great. These uh, we love those folks. They're still our sort of um, community, the people we work with. They're the ones that really help us drive these open source projects on the engineering side. Yep. But that's not where the budget lies. Uh, if you want to have a project where you're kind of uh, moving the needle in a massive way for a big, large enterprise, you probably need buy-in from someone who might have a suit on and they have access to millions of dollars. And that's a different sales cycle. So uh, that sort of enterprise sales motion, we started putting that in place uh, beginning of 2016. 
And, you know, that sort of started getting the flywheel of the revenue kind of started coming. So, you know, I think we did 13 million or so ARR that year. And then the next year we did 40 and then it just started picking up from there. Uh, so it just became much more sort of enterprise focused. Uh, so then we started doing top down and bottom up selling yep. as it's called. So bottom up, we still have the folks with the stickers. They're the ones that understand the tech. They can validate it because they can yep. say, hey, I've tried this technology. I downloaded it. It actually works. It's really awesome. But then we also get the buy-in from the folks in the suits that are saying, well, you know, I'm going to write a check of a million dollars here. Um, this, I, I need to make sure that, you know, I'm crossing the T's and dotting the I's and go through procurement and legal and security review and all those kind of things. So, so it sort of evolved over time in that way. And, you know, there are tensions there uh, that were hard for us to resolve over time. Like marketing, for instance, is a, was a funny one, right? Uh, I remember one of the first things in 2016 was, how do we market ourselves to enterprises more? Yep. And, and marketing said, we should just say we're the enterprise spark company. Uh, and we ran it by, you know, the founders of the company and some of our sort of the folks with the stickers and the t-shirts. And they said, that's a swear word. You know, uh, I won't, I don't like use enterprise software is a swear word. You don't want to use enterprise software. That's bad. You know, it's slow. It's clunky. It's sort of J2EE old school J boss. It's like, we don't want that kind of stuff. Uh, so, you know, there are tensions in uh, how you market to a large enterprise and how you market to the forward tech uh, companies is just different. So we had to resolve a lot of these kind of issues over time uh, and try to kind of stay true both to our roots, but at the same time also make the business uh, work with the large enterprises. No, it is, it, it is a very tough tension. In fact, I was at a board meeting just yesterday and uh, the head of sales was complaining, this company doesn't have enough of a sales culture. It's company doing really well, you know, worth many billions of dollars. But, you know, for the it's an engineering centric company and, and the transition to quote unquote a sales culture is a hard transition for the company to make. How did you balance those cultural issues? Because you're still a very engineering centric organization in some ways, but you serve large enterprises and I suspect at least half the company in some shape or form on the go-to-market side. Yeah, it's tough, right? It's kind of like saying you're giving a talk to an audience and, you know, one of them, one group speaks this language, the other that language. How do you speak to them both at the same time in one language? It's kind of hard, you know, but you figure out ways, you know, your web pages, your web assets, you have different entry points based on the persona. You know, uh, I am a developer, click here. Uh, you know, I am a, you know, uh, enterprise buyer, click here. And then you have sort of different, because they are lo looking for different things. Uh, yeah. it, it's it's the same company, it's the same tech stack, but the developer wants to see, don't give me this nonsense about enterprise reliability and enterprise grade and governance and so on. Show me the code, you know, show me how I do this. Show me, the, cut the crap and give me the, uh, that's what they want to see. And we can give them that. But if you give them that, the enterprise buyer will look at it and say, I have no idea. This is really rocket science. This is some PhD stuff. Um, <laughs> I have no idea. What do they do? You know, it's like, well, the code is here. Can't you see it on the web page? Well, I, this is, you know, really advanced stuff. But, I, you know, we just want access to data. Is this secure? Um, so, um, so you have to kind of balance that with different entry points, different messages, depending on which audience you're talking to. And the sales organization at Databricks, I think uh, today you have our enterprise sellers. They're really sort of uh, the best of breed enterprise sellers, they know how to do the relationship selling top down, you know, using the latest methodologies, you know, um, really sort of process oriented. So that's how that works. 
but we have a equally large, if not larger, actually, number of people, solutions architecture group yep. that's sitting in go-to-market. And they're really, I think we have one of the most sophisticated solutions architect uh, group. They're super technical. Almost all of them are engineers. They sympathize with sort of the R&D department at Databricks, and they sit close to the R&D department. And those folks can do the hands-on coding. So um, that's a little bit different. In many enterprise software companies, you find a salesperson and they have an SE, a sales engineer, who maybe can do a demo, you know, at best. Yeah. Right? But we have sort of hands-on, really, uh, really sort of technical uh, solutions architects uh, folks that can help. So we balance that also. So there's like a pair always uh, in every account. So the AE can handle the execs, and the SA can handle the people that are hands-on and want to actually make this stuff work. So and you've ended up having. It sounds like uh, at least a one-to-one for every AE, you have at least one solutions architect in the company. Yeah, I, I'll be honest. In, in a really larger account, it might be even more than that, you know, uh, because, you know, these, it's making machine learning work for a use case. You know, I mean, take some of our use cases, right? You can apply for a credit card on your app, you know, on your phone for Apple credit card. This yep. goes to Databricks. You have it approved in less than an hour and you can start buying stuff on it on your phone, even though you don't have the physical card. That all goes through Databricks. Getting a use case like that landed, you know, is non-trivial. You can use your remote control on a Comcast uh, a remote and press the voice button. And you can speak to it, right? You know, you can say, you know, go to this channel or what's the weather today? And that goes through the cloud, gets actuated, machine learning, and then eventually you see that on your TV. That goes through Databricks, right? Um, all these use cases are non-trivial to land end to end. Uh, so, yeah, so it, it's it's a technical sale. Actually, I want to build on this. You know, you, it's a very technical sale. I think you've really, as you said, innovated on, you know, the approach, having more solutions architects versus a traditional SE, uh, with solution architects being much more technical than, it, than is normal in a traditional sales process. Can you talk about some of the other lessons you've learned on the GTM side, especially as an engineer, you know, who didn't grow up as a sales rep? Uh, yeah. It must have been quite the transition. Yeah, look, uh, I think the, the first thing that happens for engineers who sort of start managing go to market is they uh, they reject the kind of sales culture. Uh, so you have to get over that very, very quickly. Uh, sales yeah. is a very competitive field. Um, you know, if you have to generalize and put people in buckets, these are the sort of jocks from high school that, you know, used to do sports, you know, and they're competitive and they're there for the thrill of the game. You know, if they can get that, million dollar prize, uh, they'll do anything. And you want that. That's great. And that's a different culture. It is a much more competitive, target-oriented, uh, short-term focused uh, uh, sort of culture. You have to embrace that. I think that's great. If you want that, if you want a great enterprise sales team, you want them to be highly competitive. You want them to yeah. be hungry. And you want them to be, you want it a little bit to be like a military camp or sort of, you know, uh, early schedule, do your, you know, outbound calls, you know, do follow the process, you know, med pick, bent, whatever it is, down to the T, you know, get that forecasting discipline in place. So you got to embrace that culture. If you're just looking for someone that's like you, that you really say, oh, this is a sales guy I like, uh, you're probably off. You're probably hiring an engineer. And mm -hmm. the engineers, they were the ones that were trying to sell to Jawbone and couldn't even get $20 uh, a month out of it. So, uh so it really can do wonder. These folks that you might think are different, they actually can, they can, they can take a 
account that's producing $100,000 a year and turn it into a $20 million account. Uh, so you want to embrace that. That's one. Um, but, you know, second, you have to really don't, I wouldn't try to innovate too much on the compensation philosophies. They're compensated differently. And, you know, you want the compensation plans in, in early enterprise software. So early enterprise software is different from really large a Microsoft or, a, yep. you know, uh, in early stage companies, you kind of want the really, really good enterprise sellers, the ones that are really hungry. And they're there really for the thrill of, uh, can I make a million dollars this year? Uh, that gets harder as the company gets bigger uh, oftentimes. So the early stages, uh, you want the sort of comp plans that kind of enables you to make a million dollars, essentially. Yeah. And that side. You know, so the way I think about it is here in the United States, you know, you want basically be, uh, a, a good sales rep wants to make half a million, but they want to have a shot at the million dollars. And you want to enable that. Uh, and I think that goes against the DNA of many founders of saying, what? My engineers are making a fraction of that. Why should this guy who doesn't even understand the tech deeply make a million dollars? But that's the key to success. So you have to kind of enable them do that. Uh, and then you have to make sure that you're enabling them. That's another thing. Enablement is hard, right? Uh, how do you make sure that uh, the sellers really know how to sort of pitch your product and get it sold in a repeatable manner? I think that's probably one of the biggest challenges because you'll have uh, the early folks, the technical folks in the company who are really the best sellers in the organization mm -hmm. in the early days. How do you transfer that so that it becomes a repeatable sale? I joke kind of you want a guy out of Texas or a gal out of Texas selling your software who might not love your company. They might only be there for a year or two and they want to maybe have a shot at making a million dollars and they're paying half attention to your pitch. You want them to be able to, without you in the room, to go sell your software uh, and bring back, you know, several million dollars uh, contracts. Uh, when you've cracked the code on that, now you have repeatability in the go-to-market. So Ali, that is, that is exactly the goal that most companies aspire to. Any advice on how to get there? What, well, what are some of the things you did to get there? And what are some of the mistakes you made along the way? Yeah, look, systems thinking is important. So what do I mean by systems thinking? Uh, as uh, in the early days, you, you kind of have this, don't pitch it that way. Let me get out of my way. Let me show you how it's done. And then you do it yourself and you jump in and you jump in on every account and you try to, you know, these people are screwing up this deal. Let me jump in and show them how it's done. But that's the wrong thinking. It's systems thinking. So how do you create enablement? How do you have an enablement function in the organization with teachers that are certifying the sellers on how to pitch? You're not allowed to be in the room. You're not allowed to tell them how to do it. You have teachers. They have to know how to sell. The, so think of it that way. So what do you want those teachers to teach your salespeople? How, what should they certify them on? What are the quizzes? Think of it almost as a little university degree yep. uh, that you want to certify your sellers on twice a year. So twice a year. They go to university and they get a certificate that they know how to sell your software. Uh, what would that university look like? How would you design that university? Uh, people don't think of it that way. People think of it as like, we need to tweak this or we need to tweak our web page or we need to use, we should call it Enterprise Spark or we should call it this and that. It's not that. How is your university program going? Uh, think of it more like that. Uh, then you have a scalable factory where the university can train 100 sellers or 1,000 sellers uh, and the sellers simply have to pass uh, and get their degree. And if they don't get their degree, they don't, they're not allowed to sell. 
You know, it's, 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 it's amazing how you phrase that. You know, I, I had this conversation with one of my CEOs just a couple of weeks ago, and he was super excited how he's, and it's a company that's doing more than 10 million in revenues, how he's involved in every single deal. And, and at some point I sort of nicely or maybe not so nicely had to say, you know, I think that's a problem. <laughs> that's, that's not a feature. That is a bug here. And the fact that you're getting into every single deal means something's not working. And it was a hard discussion. But that's exactly what you're alluding to, which is, you know, you have to get out of the way and you have to enable the rest of the company and, and the organization to be able to sell without you. Yeah. Look, what it's the early phase. Of course, first, you have to crack the code yourself. Yeah. Oh, can, you sell, can, can, can you sell this software at all? Can anyone sell this software? But as soon as you crack the code on that, which should be in the very early product market fit sort of phase, now you want to scale it. You, as soon as you get the repeatability, you want to repeat this. You want, and they want to scale it out. You want to scale it out. And eventually, you want to scale it to Europe and Asia or whichever order you expand your operations in. Maybe you start in a different order. Um, then you have to start thinking about a factory. So, you know, oftentimes I'll see an attitude from founders or CEOs that say, oh, you know, the sales side, they're such idiots. You know, they don't know how to do this. No, you're the idiot. You're designing the company. You should organize it such that uh, you can train and enable people so that they can do this. So systems thinking, how do you build the factory? If you had only one year and then you have to leave the company and you want it to sustain itself without you there, uh, how, do you, how do you build the company that way? Makes a ton of sense. Uh, Ali, I want to come back to sort of Databricks's broader sort of vision and strategy. You talked a little bit about the journey so far. Can you talk a little bit about sort of your go forward plans? What do you yeah. see over the next couple of years? Yeah, um, happy to do that. Look, so in some sense, think of it this way. Um, Google is not really a search or an ads company. It's really a data analytics and AI company in the following sense. If Google had no AI or machine learning at all, all these years, mm -hmm. you'd probably be using Alta Vista right now, uh, right? Yeah. So same thing with Twitter. If Twitter ha didn't have their algorithmic feed with you know machine learning behind the scenes and so on, probably we would not be using it. It wouldn't be a big deal whether presidents are using it or not and who's tweeting what. Uh, so these companies really sort of disrupted their markets with data analytics and AI. Um, how do we enable every company on the planet to do that? I think that's what the future will be like. Uh, I think in 10 years, all software that you see will have this, right? So Mark, it's almost cliche, but Mark Andreessen said software is eating the, the world. Um, well, I think data and AI will eat all of software. I really mean it in a literal sense. Like you could write an article just like the 2011 Mark Andreessen article the same way. If you have software anywhere, that software could be collecting data and making more intelligent decisions yep. for you. And it, you know, I hate to tell people this, but you're quite predictable. Uh, you know, <laughs> so the software kind of knows what you want and what you could do next and what's going on. And uh, that's going to happen automatically in every profession, in every industry. Uh, in every organization. Um, so how do we enable the enterprises to get there? If they don't get there, they'll get disrupted by a new upstart, probably funded by you, Ashu. Uh, hopefully, which uses, crossed. You know, which hopefully also uses Databricks and then builds this technology. So there's going to be this battle around the startups that are going to start out the right way using a plat platform like Databricks for data analytics AI, and they're going to build their specialized vertical thing on top of it. Versus the big incumbents that already have this, you know, large customers, you know, multi-billion dollar revenue, can they re-platform under the hood to something like Databricks? And there's going to be a race between these two. We want to enable all of them 
so in some sense, I think what's going to happen over the next 10 years is very similar to the 70s. In the 70s, everybody was building software. And the software, they were building things, you know, they were laying out data on disk and they were reorganizing the information that the application had. And then Larry Ellison showed up and said, hey, here's a black box database. It's actually pretty advanced and it's a pretty technical sale, by the way. Yeah. It has asset transactions and, you know, relational models and COD and whatnot. And, but don't worry about it. This takes care of the hardest part of the software you're building. Just buy this from me and you can build all your applications on top of it. And out of that came lots of different, you know, software, whether it was PeopleSoft or, you know, HR software or financial software or ERP software, whatever it was. Uh, and now we take it for granted the database is under the hood on every application on the planet. Same thing is going to happen in the next 10 years. Uh, people are going to leverage, let's call it an AI database, for lack of a better word, right? We call it the lake house. But, you know, you can think of it as a database that has machine learning and AI capabilities. That's going to be built into every software that's going to be built on the planet. Uh, we want to be that sort of AI database or that lake house platform uh, that's under the hood. And uh, that's that's what we're focused on doing. And, and so over time, it'll replace all existing databases. Well, I, I think intelligence will creep in wherever you have data. You know, the, the data by itself is uh, before the focus was on the data, putting it there. But now it's like, how do you actually glean insights out of that data? Um, a lot of that work has in the early phases is exploratory. Like, I just want to understand what's going on with this data. Give me the insights. But more and more, you want to actuate it. So you want the system to automatically take the data, find the pattern, and then do something with it automatically, right? Like, look at the data and say, you know, this, I think this is a question Ashu wants to ask next from Ali. Here's a suggestion. And then you can just read it on your screen. And it's like, wow, how did it know what I should ask? Well, you know, it's looking at all your previous questions that you asked me, conversations I've had, you know, how you think about things, pulling things from the web, and then they can just give you. So in that way, all software will get more intelligent. So, yeah, I do think wherever you have data, you're going to have machine learning capabilities right next to it. And, and whatever you have machine learning, you'll have Databricks. That's, I mean, you asked our vision. We hope that it should be us. It could be someone else. It could be other options there as well, right? Uh, but I do think the world will look like that in 10 years. So I want to build on sort of the future uh, that you described. I was at AWS reInvent last week. And, and the fascinating thing was, and, and maybe this is a function of, you know, people I was talking to, but more people were talking about Databricks than they were about AWS at reInvent. So huge kudos to you and the brand you've built and the, and, 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 and the you know, street cred you have with what is a very technical audience at AWS reInvent. Uh, and for a lot of the entrepreneurs who are in the data space, you know, Databricks has become their true north. It's, it's, it's what they look up to. Uh, at the same time, you're doing so much today that a lot of them do wonder, are you friend or foe? And, and where, you know, where will they compete and where they should collaborate with you? I uh, would love to get your perspective uh, on what advice would you have for those entrepreneurs? Yeah, uh, that's a great question. So um, we were on the other side, right? I mean, I, we're, we're the small guys. We built all, all of our business on AWS. I swiped a credit card, uh, never talked to anyone at AWS for the first bunch of years. And our business just grew and we were the little guys and, you know, they're competing services on the clouds and eventually we went to multiple clouds. So uh, we've been on the other side of it and we are on the other side of it still. And so we're trying to take those lessons that we learned um, having done that and try to apply it. So what are the things that we think are really, really important for us? It's extremely important to build very tight integration with the partner ecosystem 
of startups that are building out right now. Uh, that's one of the reasons we double down so much on open source. Open source helps us actually integrate with the software they're developing. Yes. The APIs are open. They can look at the code and they can do all of that. But the second principle that we have that's really, really important to us is, and this is, again, learning from working with the big cloud giants uh, as tiny sort of startups, um, we want to make sure that we're leveling the playing field in our go-to-market, which means I don't want my sellers to prefer our software over any of these startups' software uh, that is out there in the ecosystem. Um, you know, back in R&D and engineering might be building products. They might overlap with something that some startup is building somewhere. But I want to make sure that when it comes to us selling and promoting and marketing and sharing leads, it's equal footing with the, with the whole startup ecosystem. And there's an egotistical reason why I'm doing that. Uh, it's not just altruism. Uh, I actually think that's this evolutionary superior way of building a company. Because let's say I tell my sellers to a little bit prefer selling whatever we built over a partner's. Well, it's an indirect tax then on the partner. So it's almost in a way like a tariff. And what do tariffs do? They make my teams incompetent because my teams don't need to compete on equal terms. They can cheat. They can be more lazy. They can build worse software and still do okay. And that's a terrible recipe in the long run uh, for building amazing, great software uh, in the future. So for that reason, I don't want to give my R&D teams that kind of, you know, lazy advantage. Uh, let's let's have everybody compete on equal terms. Wow, that's a that's a pretty extreme stance to take in some ways. Uh, we learn from working with the big cloud uh, sort of giants, right? Um, so yeah, I, I absolutely want my salespeople to promote and sell the partner software just as much as the software that we have ourselves, 100%, you know, and I really mean it. Um, and I, you know, put my money where my mouth is. Uh, that doesn't mean that R&D won't also build software, uh, but I don't want them to have an unfair advantage uh, in the market. Um, so you're definitely creating a level playing field in that sense for both. Yeah. And then open source will help them integrate. So partnerships with the ecosystem is going to be extremely important for us going forward. Uh, and I actually want all these startups to succeed. And... I have, pers on a personal level, a lot of sympathy for uh, these founders, you know. Uh, for the majority of my life, I was one of them. Uh, and I understand how hard it can be and how frustrating it is uh, to succeed. So, you know, uh, I kind of want, deep in my heart, them to succeed as well. Yeah, that's great to hear. And in fact, there's an audience question sort of building on that comment. In the early days, uh, when you were sort of, you know, a small, relatively small team, you know, uh, and relatively unknown, did you, did you depend on mostly warm introductions from investors and others in the ecosystem, or did you build a system to actually get cold leads and, and follow yeah, look, them through? Look, in the early days, you're desperate. You do whatever you can. <laughs> you know, whatever comes your way. You know, you're not going to be picky and say, you know, this and that. So we did all of the above. You know, if someone had an introduction, we would happily take that introduction. If we could find something, you know, we would take whatever we can get. If, you know, if you give us a little finger, we try to grab it and you know, get our foot in the door and, you know, try to get just one meeting, just five minutes if possible to, to sell it. What worked, uh, it really kind of is random. So it's hard to say. There's no pattern. So there is no answer that just focus on warm introductions from people that know or just focus on cold leads. No, I would say have the same attitude we had, you know. Uh, do everything in the beginning. Yeah, do everything. Do whatever yeah. it takes. Try to, try to make whatever you can get to be successful. I will tell you a pattern, though. Uh, 
the book Crossing the Chasm, everybody has read it and, mm -hmm. you know, sort of thought about it. But it is true that there is sort of a innovators to, you know, uh, you know, innovators going over to sort of early adopters, to early majority, to late majority, to laggards. That journey of the product is true. So if you're straight up starting a company today and you're going after the laggards, you're going after a very entrenched, big, old school, and you're trying to sell to them, going to be much, much, much harder. You better have something that's really revolutionary uh, because there's so many barriers you have to cut through. Uh, the barrier to entry at those large companies is really hard. You're better off if you start focusing on selling to startups. Uh, the startups don't have massive security requirements and lots of red tape and procurement. And, you know, that guy with a T-shirt, that gal with a T-shirt and a sticker might even actually swipe your credit, their credit card and give you uh, $30,000. Start that way and get the product market fit and get the flywheel going. They'll hopefully, in, once you have that scale, you can start moving up to the enterprise. Many companies did that journey that way. Salesforce was built that way. Absolutely. Dropbox yeah. was built that way and so on. So I think that's a little bit easier than saying we're going to crack the code directly to sell to JPMC from day one. Makes a ton of sense. Uh, we got another audience question that I'll build on sort of what you just said. As you're building out your sales organization, very often you have to make a choice between someone who has a lot of industry experience uh, versus somebody who doesn't have industry experience but is a better salesperson. I mean, if both things, if the sales skills are equal, then it's an easy decision. But if you have someone who is a weaker salesperson with deep industry experience versus a sales athlete that doesn't know your industry, how, how should a founder go about making that decision? Yeah, look, there's, it's not black and white, these things. And, you know, it's nuanced. So it's, it's hard to just take what I'm saying and just, you know, make a, make a theorem out of it. But uh, generally speaking, I would go for the athlete that knows sales really, really well. You should know your industry. Back to what I said earlier, you should be able to teach them. It should be a university where you teach them uh, what your technology does. Um, you anyway have to do that over time. You anyway, the next 10 sellers, what are you going to do with the next 10 sellers and the next 20, 30, 40, 100, 1,000 sellers? They have to be trained and they're not going to be from your industry. How do you take a generic great athlete and teach them your software and teach them to sell that? That's the code you have to crack anyway. So my advice would be get an amazing seller and then teach them your technology. And if it's, if it's your first salesperson, you're going to be in the room anyway, and you're going yep. to be on that field. But eventually, you have to learn to get out of that room and let them do it themselves. Some caveats to what I just said. Uh, there are different types of athletes. Not all sports are the same. Okay? So, you know, you might have a very great, you know, amazing salesperson, but they were focused on mid-market SMB business. Uh, you know, how you sell Tableau or Alteryx, uh, you know, these are sort of repetitive, much more high-velocity, small transactions. Like yep. Tableau license costs a couple of thousand dollars, and Alteryx license costs a few thousand dollars, and so on and so forth. That's a different kind of sell, where you want to get that flywheel going, selling a lot of those, and then eventually upselling a big server. Uh, that's different from, you know, how you sell an SAP, uh, where you might say, hey, Ashu, I'm going to sell you this ERP system. It's going to take five years to install it. You know, you're not going to be able to rip it out ever, uh, but it's the greatest investment in your life. That's a yeah. different sales cycle, right? So uh, so you want to think about which seller. But should they know your business and be technical and understand your product? No. Got it. Well, one of the other questions that just came up was, you know, building on the vision that you described about sort of being the underlying AI database uh, for almost every use case and application, because all software will become AI enabled or AI first software. 
how do you think about customizing your product to particular use cases or verticals as against having something that is more horizontal and cuts across industries? Yeah, I mean, our focus is mostly a horizontal platform. Uh, and that's why I'm back to the sort of partnerships and why we are partner friendly and why we want these startups to succeed. We, we can't build all those verticals on top of us. We can't specialize on all of those. So we really want to make sure that they can come and build that on top of Databricks. Uh, they'll have the know-how. Um, you know, no, no platform company can sort of perfectly verticalize and build all the apps on top of it. Uh, that's just never happened before. Like, you know, iPhone doesn't own all the great software you use on it, right? Uh, Windows didn't own all the software that was built yeah. on top of it. Linux doesn't have all that. So there's always going to be an ecosystem on top of it. And you want to have this sort of evolutionary kind of what I said, uh, mechanism where you let lots and lots of apps, thousands of them flourish and let the best one win on top of your platform instead of you trying to win in each of them. So that's how we see it. We'd much rather have the partners build that on top of Databricks rather than us verticalizing. Um, that's a separate topic from how we sell. We, of course, sell in a verticalized fashion. Yep. That's a different story. That's that, that has to do with our salespeople are focused on a vertical. So our sellers that are in the financial vertical, at, at a certain scale, you make this transition into vertical sales. Um, it's not relevant if you're an early startup. To do that, you need to have certain critical mass of sellers so that otherwise uh, you can't really get geographic coverage and vertical coverage at the same yeah. time. Uh, so you need a certain number of sellers so that you can just say, hey, here's a group of sellers. They only sell to you know, financial industry in New York. Um, and so that is happening at Databricks. But our software on top of it, it's, it's a horizontal platform. Makes, it, makes a ton of sense. Uh, we, we're getting one other audience question around uh, your advice for you know, hiring salespeople, the notion of hire, hire an athlete and train them on the industry specifics. Would you have the same advice for engineering hires or do you think about engineering hiring very differently? Yeah, I think engineering hiring is different. Um, you know, the, the goal of sales is really sort of, if you're doing enterprise sales, really what you're trying to do is you're trying to navigate really large, large complex organizations and their hierarchies and try to get buy-in and try to sort of get a message through a large organization, which is largely a little bit confused, a little bit at odds with each other, uh, where there's a lot of this kind of like lots of people diffused responsibility. You want to crack the code of that organization. A great seller knows how to do that. They use techniques um, to be able to crack the code of the organization that they're selling to. Um, what they're selling, you can have someone technical that an SA or an SE that can do that. So that's why I'm saying I want the person that have that skill set uh, to do that kind of relationship selling and you know working the hierarchy and the sales yep. process and all of that. Uh, engineering is a very specialized art in what you are building. A back-end engineer is going to be different from a front-end engineer. Um, you know, a performance engineer is going to be different from... So uh, there, I would say, it depends on what you're building. Um, on the engineering side, it's actually a little bit easier to hire people, I think, or, or to qualify if someone is good or not. Uh, if they're actually writing code, have them write code before you hire them and make sure that they really, Absolutely. really do that. Yeah. Right? Just, just have them do the job. They can do that. Uh, and if they don't have time then don't have them work, you know, join your company. So you can actually test them on writing codes. Look at their code. There's, of course, behavioral stuff you need to check. And maybe there is technical documentation and so on. You can write, have them write that as well. Uh, but I think, yeah, I think it's pretty separate. And I think the problem, many problems come from people who are good at hiring one type to try to apply it to the other, uh, you know, and it doesn't always transfer. It, does, it doesn't translate. Absolutely. Uh, 
There's a question, and you may may not be comfortable answering this, but but I'll ask the question. Uh-oh. The question that is much more specific about your partnership with Confluent, mm-hmm. uh, and it's in the context of a broader sort of the broader conversation around partnerships. How do you see the Confluent partnership uh, as you look and look ahead? Is that I'm an important about part? It. Yeah, we partner with them. I'm excited about it. I talked to Jay last week about this, the CEO. I think we should partner more closely, even, and I think we can have a great. Uh, outcome for both companies. It's and and the, you know understanding that is pretty simple. We see a lot of Kafka sources yep. come into our lake house, into Delta, uh, into our machine learning workloads, into our data processing Delta workloads, and um, they see a lot of Spark on top of Kafka, and they see a lot of Delta and lake house use cases on top of it. Uh, so. We're complementary in that sense. Now, any data company that's super successful will start growing, and eventually there's going to be a little bit of overlapping boundaries. But I think it's negligible. Like the core businesses are the core businesses, and I think they're very complementary. So, uh, you know, we're partners, and I hope that we can partner even closer in the future. Uh, absolutely, and you know, it's, we're about to wrap up, but it's hard for me to wrap up given that we started talking about competitors and partners and Confluent. You've been, in, you know. Uh, you've been in the press, or the company's been in the press with a lot of controversy with Snowflake around uh, competitive benchmarking, and it reminded me of you know the '90s all over again. Uh, would you care to comment on that? Sure, happy to. Look, so that brings us to this lighthouse concept, right? We believe in this sort of open uh, architecture where you store all your data in an open format, one copy of it in a data lake, okay? And that one copy, you can use it for machine learning. You can use it for data engineering. You can use it for real-time analytics. You can use it also for data warehousing, all in that one copy of the data lake. Okay. Now, the, the prevalent architecture is that you take the copy of that data in the data lake and move it into other places. We're yeah. trying to do that. We're trying to simplify that for enterprises. So hence the concept of the lake house, data lake plus warehouse combined in one place. People like this. Some people love the term. Some people hate the term. But they're intrigued by it and say, this is awesome. So does that mean I can do my data warehousing directly on the lake house? And we've said, yes, absolutely. So, okay, that's neat. But can I really get best-in-class performance out of that? And say, yeah, absolutely. So, well, but isn't it better if I have best-of-breed data warehouse separate? Wouldn't that give me a better price performance? And we wanted to convince them that, look, there is absolutely no technical reason why you can't have best-in-class performance on a lake house. And so we said, how can we do that? If we write blogs about it, no one's going to trust us. Yes. So we went to tpc.org, which is the official committee. And first year, they actually said, you don't pass. Second year, we participated. They're like, okay, now you have something that works. And they wrote a 40-page doc on how it works. And, uh, um, and you know, we, we got the world the rest record. Is history. Yeah, and we, we published a blog on that. For some reason, Snowflake had a visceral reaction to that. And took it super personally and started talking about ethics and, uh, you know, uh, competing with. Uh, and then they wrote, they did a lot of benchmarking. They wrote a lot of benchmark blogs and they urged people to do more benchmarking. But I think the key point we wanted to make is you can get best in class data warehousing performance in the lake house. And I think that's been established. And I think actually, frankly speaking, Snowflake's response helped establish that as well. You know, when, when other people start talking about you more than they talk about themselves, it's always great marketing. Well, with that, Ali, thank you so much for joining us today. It's, it's been wonderful having you today, and it's been wonderful having you as part of FC Build both years. So thank you so much for your time and for answering all these questions uh, so openly. Thank you so much, Ashu, and thanks for partnering with us over all these years. Thank you. 
That's our show for now. You can find past episodes and subscribe to future ones wherever you get your podcasts or at foundationcapital.com. And if you like the program, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps others to find the show. B2B a CEO is a production of Foundation Capital, an early stage venture capital firm with over $3 billion in committed capital and 29 public companies to our name, including Netflix, Lending Club, TubeMogul, and Sunrun. At Foundation Capital, building companies is in our bones. I'm Ashu Garg, a general partner at Foundation Capital. I'm passionate about helping B2B entrepreneurs who are trying to solve hard problems. So if this podcast speaks to you, if you're a technical founder who's interested in scaling an enterprise startup into a massive business and scaling themselves into a true CEO, drop me a line.